Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Talking in Circles. I am Clayton Caldwell with Rocky Ryan, spotter of the number 38 for the Front Row Motorsports, and David Reagan. He also spots for the Xfinity Series with Ross Chastain and the Truck Series with Ross Chastain here. It's going to be a weekly segment on Talking in Circles. Today we're going to talk about Texas Motor Speedway. We'll also talk about qualifying and the big news of the week here, uh, also the 2020 schedule. We'll get his opinion on all that and, and more. The number to call is 917 919- 889-8280 if you want to join in today and, and ask Rocky Ryan or myself a question here today on Talking Circles. But Rocky, since this is a weekly segment, this is, this is something that uh, you know we're going to do here on a regular basis. I kind of want to introduce you to the fans. You know, um, I know I'm sure fans are familiar with you, but they're not really sure when you started, uh, how long you've been doing this. So if you could take us from the beginning, how did you get into spotting and uh, who'd you start with? And kind of take us to your career here that led to David Reagan and the 38 and Ross Chastain and Xfinity and, and, and trucks. Well, thanks, Clayton. And I'm not sure I remember as long ago as it's been. I don't remember when I got started. Uh, actually, this is year number 26 for me, and I'm pretty proud of that. We don't talk about it an awful lot. The the spotter group on the roof were, were pretty closed in, you know, amongst each other. You know, we we spend more time, the spotters spend more time with the fellow spotters than we do with our own race teams because we're pretty much on the roof from the time the garage opens to the time the garage closes every day. So we know the guys up there better than we know our own teammates, our own, you know, own crew guys, all that. So, you know, we have, we have our unwritten rules and our unwritten things we're supposed to say and not supposed to say. And I'm pretty proud now of the fact that this being my 26th year, I am, I guess you would say, the longest tenured spotter on the roof. Um, nobody's been up there now longer than I have. Bob Jeffrey would have been would have been the closest to me, but he kind of semi-retired last year, did a part-time schedule, and hasn't done anything yet this year. So that kind of hands the the gauntlet over to me. And I, I'm, you know, in a way, if you've been doing it this long, it's it's fun to think about the fact that you know I've seen so much come and go, and you know I've been up top for for so many, you know neat moments things that you won't definitely won't forget but just to see the amount of spotters that come and go and and one thing i like to one thing i believe in or i like to do is anytime we do have a new spotter up there is i remember even though it's been 26 years i remember what it was like the first time i went up there how intimidated i was with all these other guys that had been doing it and it's it's a tough job and the first time you have to go up there and do it i mean the nerves are just crazy so I always like to go down and talk to the new guys and just try and make them feel a little bit more comfortable because I remember that first day and nobody talked to me. I was I was standing down there by myself and I was afraid to say anything to anybody. Nobody was saying anything to me. So I remember those feelings to this day and, and you know, don't want to lose those. Had some great moments. I mean, in 26 years, you, you, you know, the best feeling in the world is when you win a race. The worst feeling in the world is when your driver is in a wreck and you have to ask if he's okay. And I've had both of those. I've had multiple of both of those. You know, won the Daytona 500 in 2002 with Ward Burton. You know, won some championships in Xfinity and Truck. Was with Johnny Benson and Truck for quite a number of years. And to this day, he and I are, are still really, really good friends. You form, a, you form a relationship. You know, a lot of guys can say, you know, I can spot for this guy and then walk away and never talk to him again. And that's true. But if you do it long enough and do it, you know, with one person long enough, you develop friendships. Because in in the case of David, uh, um, 
you know, we're we're very, very good friends. We don't talk on a daily basis. We don't hang out and do all that kind of stuff. But I know in, in David's mind, when he climbs into that race car, he's dependent on me to take care of him. And he and his family, his mom and dad, his brother Adam, his wife Glenn, and their two girls, they know that my responsibility is to take care of him, is to bring him back safely every single day so that he can see his family again. And that's that's a really neat feeling, and that's, I think, what drives spotters more than anything else is to know that there's another human being out there out there in this world that trusts me that much. And that's pretty cool. It is. Now, a couple of things here. One, how's it changed? And, and I know when, when, we, when I think about uh, 26 years ago, I'm sure the, the safety wasn't nearly as, as good as it is today. I mean, we, we've, since then, we've introduced safer barriers, Hans devices, safer cars. Uh, everything you can think of, just it's amazing how far we've come in safety since that time. But has there been anything else that's changed for you as, as far as the philosophy of spotting over the last 26 years, maybe from when you first got into now? The technical aspect is a hundred times bigger than it was when I first started. When I first started, spotters pretty much said clear, inside, outside, wreck, and that was pretty much it. Now we are we are just as important as the crew chief, as the driver, as far as what we see happening on the track, where he's loose, where he's tight, the things that are going on around him, what the other cars are doing, being able to relay to to your driver that, that Kyle Busch is doing this or Kevin Harvick is doing that in a way that they will understand and be able to duplicate it immediately. We've gotten so much more technical than we used to be, and that's probably why that you'll see nowadays that the I'm, maybe the majority, it's, if it's not the majority, it's close to the majority, of the guys on the roof are ex-drivers, which I know you're going to ask the question, so I'll go ahead and answer it off the bat. I am not one of those. I'm still the old school guy, but I've been able to bring myself into the 21st century with everybody else and be able to talk intelligently enough about what these cars are doing. But to me, that is by far the biggest thing. We used to have a relatively easy job, like I said, of just clearing them and letting them know what's going on. But now it's so much more involved with this new qualifying format. It is just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy the amount of things that, that they're depending on spotters to be able to help them with. It's great. It's good for me. It's job security, and I'm all for that. But it just makes it really, really difficult that we now look at things differently than we used to. We look at things on a technical aspect as opposed to just a safety and survival aspect. Do you think that's changed because the driver can't really see as much as they used to? You know, when you first started, uh, you know, you could easily probably move your head around a lot more. And and sort of if you're a driver, you could probably see to your right, see to your left a little bit more. Now you're so confined in there, uh, you really can't see a lot. Do you think that's had a lot to do with that as well? I think it's had something to do with it, but to me, just the sport has gotten so much more technical than it used to be that that everybody has to come up to speed at that and has to be as as well versed on the technical side. You know, in the in the old days, and and I'm sure we'll talk about this in the weeks to come. You know, probably, you know, one one of my greater moments again going back to winning the Daytona 500 was Ward Burton. You know, Ward was a, a an interesting person amongst himself to himself. We, you know, the the verbiage was completely different, but back then the technical side wasn't nearly as important. You know, I just, I can't, Ward's favorite saying, absolute favorite thing to say, and I, I've, I heard it, heard it, heard it, was this car won't turn in a 40-acre field. Well, that was the terminology back then. 
you know, you weren't that exact on, you know, you know, well, if you give me a half a round of wedge, it's going to do this. Or if, if you take a half a pound out of the right front, it's going to do that. We didn't do those kind of things. It just won't turn. So the crew chief would have to figure out what it won't turn in a 40-acre field means. Now we're so much more exact than we used to be, and spotters need to come up to speed and be able to do that as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I can see certainly how that's all changed. It's amazing just how how long uh, everything's changed in 26 years, how much it's changed, and you're still uh, doing the exact same job. It's pretty amazing. Um, so let's talk about the news of the week, Rocky, if you don't mind. Let's get into a couple of things here, some real things that are – that were, that really caught the news was the 2020 schedule. Uh, we've had a lot of changes. I know David was on a record this week and said it was long overdue. We have some a nice set of short tracks in the schedule. I wasn't thrilled with uh, moving the July 4th race from Daytona. I felt like you could have changed changed all that and kept that date and kept that uh, historic event at that date. Um, what are your thoughts on the 2020 schedule, Rocky? Is it from a spotter's perspective? Uh, it certainly looks like that you don't have to go to Atlanta and you go to the West Coast swing a little bit earlier. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I'm good with anything right now that will give us some warmth. <laughs> As I talk to you now, I'm sitting at the Texas Motor Speedway and it's 37 degrees on the last day of March. Uh, the whole time we're on the West Coast, we were all wearing winter coats up until the Sunday race at Fontana. Right now, that that's big for all of us. It's just like, please, give us some warm weather. Seriously, though, looking at the schedule, and I did look at it a lot last night. I actually kind of compared it with the current schedule just to see where our biggest changes are. There are some decent changes, and I agree with David. I think a lot of this is long overdue. I, I like it as a whole. I think it kind of makes a little bit more sense than it has in the past. I like throwing a couple of short tracks into the chase. I think that's going to be interesting. I think it's a wait-and-see type of deal. I understand your feelings on the on the Daytona race. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with a guy on Twitter about all this because he was quite upset about Daytona. He said, well, Daytona's getting screwed. And I had to kind of chuckle to myself and say, well, you can't say Daytona's getting screwed. Number one, Daytona is NASCAR. So you you got to understand, they're not going to move that race out of Daytona without everybody agreeing you know it's not nascar is just gonna say okay we're gonna take this daytona race you're taking it away from yourself you're, you're taking that july race away from yourself so there has to be some really big reasons to love the july daytona race i used to think it was so cool but remember clayton go back to the way it used to be remember we used to run the paul revere 250 the imsa race on the road course on the friday night or thursday night before the firecracker 400 well, that's been gone for decades now, not decades, probably 10, 12 years or so. That's been gone, and it's become just pretty much a standard race weekend. We come in on Friday. We run the Xfinity cars on Friday night. We run the Cup cars on Saturday night. Nobody goes home on Sunday. It, to me, had lost a lot of its luster. It really has. It didn't have the feeling of the Firecracker 400 anymore. So in that aspect of it, I'm okay. Let's try it another time. I disagree with a lot of people saying, oh, well, it's the last race in the chase. You're going to see drivers and crew chiefs over throwing up in buckets and stuff. That I don't agree with. I don't think it's going to be that intense of a race. There is going to be an intensity of anybody, ourselves included, because you go to a super speedway and everybody has an equal chance to win. There's going to be a lot of people eyeing that race going, okay, if I can get lucky and win, that race is going to punch my ticket into the playoffs. So I've got a chance. 
So in that case, that's going to ramp up, you know, what we do that weekend. At the same time, you're going to have probably at least 12 drivers with victories. Well, what incentive do they have to push the envelope and to try and win that Firecracker 400? Is it because they're going to get a few extra points going into the playoffs? Sure, and they'll think about that. But will they put themselves in harm ways in, in harm's way to do it? No, no, I really right. Think that's a good point. Out at that point, you know, so that's it's going point. to have a good side to it. It's going to have a negative side to it, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. But to me, like I said, we've lost so much of the luster of that race anyway. Then you know, let's go ahead and pull it out of. July 4th weekend, and let's put it at the end of the regular season and see what happens. Yeah, and that's a good point about the guys sitting in the back because we saw Joe Gibbs Racing do that in the playoffs last a couple of years ago. Uh, they all kind of sat in the back and just and just hung out for the entire event because they didn't really need mm-hmm. to win that race or advance. Uh, the only thing I get worried about, and we have a caller here, and I want to get to him in a second. Uh, the only thing I get worried about here is like what we saw with the Southern 500 where the Southern 500 was a race that was synonymous with Labor Day weekend. They went and moved it, and they tried to um, say, you know, well, it's still the Southern 500. It wasn't the Southern 500. It never felt like the Southern 500. It never raced like the Southern – it just wasn't the Southern 500. And now we've moved it back. And the Southern 500, I think that, that feel is back. But a lot of that has to do with uh, the throwback weekend we do there. You know, and I think it, – it's just, all right, have we lost one of the key dates? And, and one thing I also want to say, and I, this is where I disagree with NASCAR's philosophy, where they look at these dates, for example, July 4th weekend, and they say that's an iconic date on the NASCAR schedule. Well, the only reason why it's iconic is because of Daytona. It's not iconic because it just it's because people think of racing on July 4th weekend. That's not why it's iconic. And we should have learned that, that lesson from what we learned with Darlington because – uh, Labor Day weekend at California wasn't that special, and Labor Day weekend at Atlanta wasn't that special. It only is special and always will be special at Darlington Raceway for Labor Day weekend, I think, uh, into the Southern 500. So I think that that's where I get a little bit like sit there and go, have they learned their lesson from the past? Because it's just to say that the July 4th weekend is special when we're going to Indianapolis instead of Daytona, I think is a little, is a little much in my, my opinion. Um, Nine well, seven, play, eight, it, eight, play nine. it another angle. If you don't mind, play it another angle. Sure. All right, look at it two ways. Number one, when was the last time the July race at Daytona was sold out? It's been a while. It's been a while. Number two, Indy, Indy needs something to get it kick-started again. Let, let's get the enthusiasm going back there. So maybe a 4th of July weekend might be good for that. Now, the, the kicker to all this, and this is just this is just Rocky Ryan speaking. This is not – I have no inside information. I know nothing. I'm just – you know, and listening to you, it made me think of this. You're right. We pulled the Southern 500 out of Labor Day weekend at Darlington, and everybody lost their mind. They put it back. Now it's more exciting than it's ever been. Could they now be doing the same thing with Daytona? Let's pull it out for a few years and see how it reacts. If people really are upset about it, then we'll move it back, and the enthusiasm will be high again. Yeah, but I think personally, the only reason why the 7500 is back to where the enthusiasm used to be is because of that throwback weekend. Uh, I think I just think they couldn't. They would. It's it's that's what's really separated that race from everything else. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight. Weekend in jeopardy in is the is the throwback weekend in jeopardy for two thousand twenty. That's my question. Ooh, that's a good question. I hope not. Because, uh, but but let's let's keep that in mind here. Daytona has the, the general manager at Daytona International Speedway now is Chip Willie, who created the Throwback Weekend when he was a GM or, or track president, I should say, at Darlington. So 
something to keep in mind there. Maybe it's his little baby, and he can sort of bring it back to Daytona, bring it to Daytona from Darlington. Uh, it, yep. it could very well be because you know that Darlington race is going to have a, a lot of uh, intensity to begin with because it's the start of the playoffs. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that here as as the season goes along. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight two eight zero. That's the number to call if you want to speak to me or Rocky Ryan. Philip is in New Jersey. Hello, Philip. What do you want to talk about today? Uh, thanks for having me on, Clayton, and uh, great to hear you on here, Rocky. Um, as a longtime fan of the sport like Clayton, and it's uh, cool to have you on. Um, I had a question about Texas because there's the two different corners, and I know that over the entire history of Texas Motor Speedway, it's been really hard for, uh, you know, drivers to get, you know, like the exits off of two and four right. What can you do? on your end being way up top trying to go and clear dri- clear your driver, help your driver with entry and exit so that they're not fencing it, you know, because it used to be that the corners were inverted the other way. They had the crazy transitions at Texas Motor Speedway when you first started going there to now they have two different goofy corners there. I, I was curious as to what you can do on your spot because I heard you earlier talking about how setups are changing, how you have to help with setups. How are you able to help your driver clear corners or clear while they're driving around somebody? One thing you'll hear a lot of us say today, and and I'm sure I'll say it, is the exit turn four is really, really important. And we have to watch how the car begins to, for lack of better terms, deteriorate. When the tires start to get worn, you know, typically you come off turn four, you want to let the car, as we say, show its head. We, we let the car show its head, meaning let it go where it wants to go on the exit of turn four. Let it go ahead and come up to the outside wall, you know, just let everything progress naturally. Well, as these tires start to wear down, you're going to find out that you're going to get a lot done if you can stay lower coming off turn four. That's where you see a lot of passing done where guys will get up under somebody. And it's primarily just because they're not thinking, okay, I'm coming off turn four. I'm going to let it have its head. I'm going to let it start to drift up. And somebody gets up under you, and you just lost a spot. So you'll hear me a lot today after we get 20, 25 laps on the tires. David reminded him, keep it low coming off a corner. Keep it low off a fork. Get up under somebody. That is the best place to pass. So if I'm close enough to somebody, I want to be able to get up under. That's turn four. Turn two is pretty standard even when the tires start to wear out. There's not a lot of room. You can still get up under somebody, but you've got to start making that move further back in the corner in one and two than you do in three and four. He's got to get right up to somebody's bumper in the middle of the turn. Got to start getting them a little bit loose, taking the air off the spoiler, start to making them feel just a little bit tail happy. And then as soon as that happens, he's able to shoot up under him. We can beat him on the exit. So I just got to remind him as we start to wear the tires down as to what kind of lines that are going to be more important to him. Get up under people. You will hear me say that so many times today. Get up under them. Get up under them because you've got a little bit more grip down there. You don't want to use it up if you don't have to, but that's going to be the best place to get up to get by somebody is to get under them, and that's what we'll talk about a lot today. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Philip, and uh, be sure to call in again. Thank you. Uh, yep. Philip and, and Philip, real quick. Uh, he he does the the we we have another set of talking circles where uh, we do a two day a week show with him and, and Spencer Cowan. So if you want to hear more of Philip, he's he's a smart guy. Him and, and Spencer, uh, you can hear them more on talking circles later tonight. We'll just we'll cool. he'll help preview uh, review I should say the race from Texas Motor Speedway and uh, and we'll also talk about the news of the week uh, sometime next week. But to get back to where we were, Rocky, um, the 2020 schedule 
is there a track and, and there's been a lot of talk about this and now I, I i feel like i was more optimistic a year ago than i am today about a new track coming onto the cup circuit um you know i just feel like now all of a sudden that people are saying well you know these tracks really can't uh these tracks that people are talking about like nashville i know that's been kind of kicked around here a few times um about maybe an all-star race there but is there a track you'd like to see on the schedule uh on the cup schedule um added that that, you, that maybe somebody hasn't even thought about what are your thoughts on, on maybe potentially adding just even one new track to the cup schedule this will be a nice easy simple answer for you no <laughs> okay i mean i i'd like to say yes but no i mean I'm not a huge road course guy, and let me explain really quickly. Me too. Spotters are not road course fans, not road course (laughs) fans at all, because we're used to being in control. We're used to talking the entire racetrack. So you send us to a road course where it's going to take two or three of us to do our jobs, it's not good. We're not happy about that. So I'm not going to be a huge fan of road course. I like like working them. I, I like going to them. I like watching races there. I just don't feel as comfortable working there as I do it at an oval. So I'm not going to be a big, huge, you know, road course component and say we need to go to more road courses. You know, we're an oval track society. That's what we were brought up on, and that's hopefully where where we will retire from. So I think that's great. Sprinkle in a couple of, of road courses here. I think that's fine and dandy and wonderful. But let's not oversaturate the market because as soon as we do, we end up regretting it and resenting yes. the fact that now we have too many road courses. As far as yeah. the Rockingham, Nashville's, all that kind of stuff of the world, I like to take each one of those and dissect them. You know, somebody would call in and say, well, what about Rockingham? Well, <clears throat> you know, how many times have we been to Rockingham? How many times have we said, okay, we're going back to Rockingham. We're going to give them another shot. And each time it doesn't work. As much as I'd love to say, let's go to Rockingham, we've not been able to make it successful. So why do we keep talking about it? Wilkesboro, you know, Wilkesboro is going to take probably yes. as much as Nashville will to get it back up and going, 15 to $20 million. Well, it's, it's great. It's great to talk about it and it'd be great to race there again. But if you're going to start off 15 or $20 million in the hole, we better be sure we've got a fan base that's willing to support it because they're going to have to make a profit fast or they're not going to want to do it. So I'm a little leery about that. Nashville, Nashville's my hometown. So I guess you would say Nashville's my home track. It's not ready. It's just not ready for a cup deal. I, I suspect that there will be a truck race there. I'm going to go ahead and go out on them now and say 2022, there will be a truck race there. I know that Marcus Smith just said a couple of weeks ago that 2021 will be the absolute earliest that they could race there. And I agree. But at the same time, they still have not sat down with the city. They have not begun negotiations on what's going to be done there. So they're already behind the eight ball. So can they get it ready by 2021? I think that's going to be really, really tough. And Marcus himself said it's going to be 18 to $20 million just to get it up to spec so we could run a truck race there. Okay, place only seats 18,000 people. You sell right. it out for a truck race. How long is it going to take to make up that $20 million you spent just to get it ready? It's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. Yeah. Well, you you would hope the TV deal would help that a little bit if they're running a truck race there. But, you know, I think the only way these tracks come on, if they ever do have a dream of coming on to the cup schedule, let me say this first, is that you have to start in trucks, work your way up to Xfinity, and then work your way up to the cup series. I think, you know, kind of building, 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 because it's the only way I think you're going to have the inventory and and really the money that, that these lower series tracks make 
to really uh, put into there at that time and, uh, and, and really put into the Cup Series. I, think, I don't think you'll ever see a track anymore that will go from not having a NASCAR race right to the Cup Series without running trucks or Xfinity there first. I just don't think it's ever going to happen. Um, it, is interesting, it is interesting to kind of kick around and just see. Uh, I do think the schedule is a little stale. I would like to see the trucks definitely go back to a little bit more um, short tracks. I would like to see Xfinity maybe run a little bit less companion events. Uh, but we'll see. You know, we'll see about that uh, as, as it goes on here. So a long way away from does, that, I think. Does, you, go ahead. Clayton, does Iowa make it? Does Iowa make it to the cup level? I think it will eventually. Uh, I'm not obviously the, the the only problem with Iowa, and I don't want to get too technical with this with people, but I just feel like the only way you're going to get a cup race there is if ISC or SMI buy it, uh, you know, and, and they would have to sacrifice the date. Now maybe you can move Dover out. I know Dover, their attendance. I, I asked one of my hometown tracks. I love that place. But let's be real here. We talked about it last week on Talking Circles. Philip actually brought it up. The attendance there has not been great. Uh, we used to go there back in the early 90, late 90s and early 2000s, and that place was packed. You couldn't even move. You were, you were packed in there like sardines. And now, and now the place is just, you know, there's seats everywhere. So maybe Dover, you could move out a little bit and say, hey, you know what? We're going to place a Dover date with Iowa uh, and, and sort of give Iowa, which is not really ISC. It's sort of now NASCAR owns it. I could see that happening, but I just think um, – the only problem with Iowa also, I believe, is, is just that market kind of – and now it's, it's still in that, that Midwest market with Indianapolis, with Kansas, with uh, Kentucky now up there. So you have to wonder how many more racetracks do we need up in that market. Um, but I think if it was in like Seattle or something like that, absolutely it would be here in a second because I think that's the market they want to hit. Yeah, so. I agree. What are, you, what are your thoughts on Iowa? I, I know – You've probably been there a few times with Xfinity and trucks. Uh, what are your thoughts on Iowa? To me, and then this is takes away, this has nothing to do with the racing side of things, and I know that's not fair for me to say that. To me, Iowa's biggest problem is the same with Kentucky. Kentucky has experienced this from day one, and not a lot of people think about it. Iowa, the racetrack, was built right next to the interstate, just like Kentucky was. And Kentucky is notorious for their traffic jams. I'm afraid that Iowa would be the exact same way. You know, the greatest thing, and to, to explain to everybody real briefly, the greatest way to get in and out of racetracks is to have them out in the middle of nowhere where you have all these back roads and all these secret passages and all these great ways to get in and out. You slap a racetrack on top of an interstate, you've only got one way in, one way out. And that's tough. That's tough. It's hurt Kentucky bad. Let's go back to the first Kentucky race. Everybody remembers yeah. what happened there. Just plain because they didn't have extra routes to get to get the crowd in and out. I was going to be the same way, and I think that worries everybody. As far as taking a race there, if you want to have a new racetrack to try and spice things up, to me that's that's the no-brainer. That that's the place you mm-hmm. have to go. That's the one that has sat there, bided its time all these years. If anybody deserves a shot to have a cup race that doesn't have one now, I feel like I was the place to give it. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, and, and you bring up a good point because I went to Watkins Glen for the first time this year as a media member, actually in 2018, and that place is in the middle of nowhere, and you got a lot of back roads, and you got out of there pretty quickly. I got out of there pretty quickly. I was shocked, but you're right. You know, you, mm-hmm. they had a lot of different ways to get in and out of that place through back roads, so uh, it certainly made it interesting. 
Um, and I think of these older racetracks, not to get on a little bit of a, these older racetracks where the town was sort of built around like a Martinsville. Um, I think that helps them as well because the track's always been there. Now, when you put a racetrack in to a place that a newer racetrack to, to an established area, you kind of sit there and you're like, well, it doesn't really fit that well. So um, it's interesting. Qualifying. That's, that's what I want to touch on next. And I know it's been, a, it's, I, I saw Kurt Busch's comments uh, to, I think it was Claire B. Lang or, or Lee Spencer. He was furious as a qualifying question on Saturday when he was asked about it. Clint Boyer has been on the record, not, you know, being very frustrated about it. Uh, Harvick, you can hear it in his voice. He's not very happy about it. Um, I want your opinion, Rocky. What about this group qualifying session? I mean, the, to me, the biggest problem is, uh, well, there's two problems with it. One is I, I can't stand when they're sitting there as a fan. I'm watching TV and they're sitting there and you got uh, the teams are sitting there on pit road. And I don't, I don't blame you guys for doing it because I think it makes sense to wait until the very end. Um, but I just can't stand sitting there when the clock's sticking and watching just people sit on pit road and, and Daryl and, and, and Jeff and, and Mike Joy in the, in the booth are trying so hard to, to spice enthusiasm. And they're just sitting there like, what are we going to do here? And secondly, I hate the fact, and I know racing's a sort of luck and, and luck's a part of racing, but I hate the fact that a starting position is based to me a lot on luck depending on where you go out in the line, depending on who's in front of you, depending on how close the guy's behind you, all that. I just, those are the two things I really hate is that they wait and they wait on pit road so much. And that qualifying is so dependent on luck now than, than it ever has been before. I like the fact where a team that was fast and could build a faster race car or a driver that could get more out of his equipment was starting higher and maybe potentially won the pole for that weekend. I like that fact. That's what it used to always be. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that whole qualifying situation, Rocky? Well, you say we only have an hour, so I can't tell you exactly what I think, because it would probably take much longer than an hour to do it. I don't know. We're lost. Uh, and, and we're all trying to figure this out. I completely agree with it doesn't need to be luck. It needs to be who brought the fastest race car by itself for that weekend is the person that gets the pole. That's the way it should be. I'm in complete agreement with that. As far as what we're doing right now, number one, and, and not to correct you, but just to give you another way of looking at it, we're not sitting there waiting until the end because we want to. Most right. of us would like the opportunity to go early so in case our run is not good, we can make a second run. What everybody is doing sitting there waiting is they're waiting for somebody to go first. We can't get it done by ourselves. We're going to need help. We've got to draft off somebody. Well, you've got 25 cars sitting down there at the end of pit road. The lead car is going to be the one at the biggest disadvantage. So you got 25 guys going, I'm not going to be that guy. I'll be second. I'll be 25th, but I will not be first. Well, at that point, nobody's going to go until we get down to the bitter end and we don't have a choice anymore. And at that point, you're frustrated because you don't get an opportunity to do a second run if you need it. So that's, you know, we're sitting there. We don't want to be sitting there, but we don't feel like we have a choice. And I completely agree with the drivers. I mean, we're all frustrated because this is not the way, number one, it's not the way we were brought up doing it. Number two, it's not the way that we feel is the best way to do it. Same time, like you and I talked about off air, you know, it kind of kills our argument when the 41 goes out and runs by himself and runs as good as he does. No, he didn't get the pole, but he's top five, and he did it all by himself. Well, you know, NASCAR can at that point hold up the 41 and say, look, well, the 41 was strong. The 41 was very strong. 41 came out of the same camp as the four. 
and he was a whole lot stronger than the four was. So, yes, at that point, he's able to stand up for himself, and all the rest of us can't. And then still, you know, he posted a lap by himself, and he's top five. But he didn't get the pole because the person who got the pole got a good draft. 48 got great drafts all three rounds. I don't know what to do to fix it. I don't. I mean, I, I'm old school. Single car, that's the way it should be. For two reasons. Number one, because that's the way it's always been. And for number two, because I'm a spotter of a single car, I don't have to work. And I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I think for me, I, I'm in a single car boat too, Rocky. Uh, personally, I, I think, again, I talked about what I talked about earlier was how teams, to me, I love the fact that these drivers, these crew chiefs, these team members all sit there and even the spotters included in this sit there and say, what's going to be, how are we going to make the fastest lap? Let's go out there and do that. I always thought that was interesting. Plus on TV, the way I look at it is, you know, if, if you guys got a sponsor, let's say uh, select blinds is on the car this weekend, next weekend, or a week after that. And you are, the camera is on the 38 car, the entire two laps you know, you have Mike Joy and Daryl Waltrip talking about David Reagan. You have Mike Joy and Daryl Waltrip talking about maybe Front Row Motorsports. And then they're sitting there, and, and Select Blinds pays all this money to be on that car. And that's a team that they don't really show the back end or, or 15th on back much anyway, which drives me crazy. But, um, you know, that's sort of their, their moment of the weekend. And Select Blinds can get that notoriety, get that recognition. Reagan can get that recognition. You guys at Front Row Motorsports can get that recognition. So I, I think that is what, you know, we sort of lo- lose a little bit is, is the team recognition where I always looked. And that was my, always my thing on Fridays. I was excited to watch qualifying. I'll be honest with you. The last few weeks on these mile and a half tracks, I have not been excited to watch qualifying. I was sitting there screaming at the TV on, on Friday going, this is so stupid. Why are we doing this again when we tried it once before and it never worked? This is so stupid. And I, I think there's a lot of fans who echo that sentiment. Now, I'm a fan. I've never been working with a team. I've never really worked in the media. And I've come from a fan perspective. And I, and I try and do that as much as I possibly can. Um, so to me, that's what's the most frustrating part is, Rocky. It's just I can't stand the fact that a, a team will go out there. And, and maybe the 41 was beneficial from clean air. I don't know. And maybe not having somebody in front of them. Uh, be, who knows? Um, but to me, I just think it's 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 so much based on luck, which I don't like, and that uh, it's just become a such a negative thing that throughout the weekend qualifying. I just wish it they would go back to single car runs. I mean, to me, single car runs weren't that boring. I, I'm sorry, they just weren't. I think it was just it was cool to watch these teams perform. It was the first competition of the weekend, a real competition of the weekend. It was awesome to watch the teams go out there and try and get the pole. The only thing that everybody's trying for, and I think that's what, that's what we're saying, you know, is uh, the 41 went out to shore and made a lap, but they didn't get the pole. They knew they weren't going to get the pole because everybody behind mm-hmm. them. And, that, and that's the one thing you want to get in qualifying is the pole. Yep. Everything you're saying no. is 100% right. Could not disagree yeah. with you at all. I mean, that, that's exactly – I mean, you, you, you've nailed it. It's perfect. But hopefully at some point the powers that be will, will see that or come up with something that, that will satisfy everybody. Like we talked about earlier too, the only thing I can predict right now is I predict that the rounds, the length of the rounds will be pretty much cut in half. Right now we're 10, 10, and 5. 10 minutes for the first round, 10 minutes for the second round, five minutes for the third round. Wouldn't surprise me at all if they don't turn around and cut that in half and go five minutes first round, 
three minutes second round, two minutes third round, just to make everybody, to force everybody to go quicker. But it's the same difference. You're still only going to get one run. We'll go. You know, we'll, we'll do what they want, but you're still going to be practicing. And I have a real quick theory on this that I thought about, um, and I just want to kick it around with you because you're a spotter and you've had a lot more experience in this than I had. How about if the first round sort of had three groups where you went out in three groups of 12, since we have only 36, 37 cars, three groups of 12 or 13, and they each got three minutes and they went out there to do their qualifying, and that was all round one. Uh, And you sort of randomly picked them, and they went out there, 12 cars, and they said, okay, you got three minutes to go out there and make a lap. That would help intensity. Do you think that would confuse people? What are your thoughts on maybe that? And then, you know, round two will be two groups of 12 and just kind of keep them to a group of 12. And then the last round, three minutes for each group of 12. Do you think that will do anything? We actually talked about that a little, uh, a couple of weeks ago. The spotters did as we were killing time on the roof. That's very similar to the way ARCA does their super speedway qualifying. They send them out in groups and you've got like three minutes or whatever to do the best you can do. They, pick their groups by, all right, group number one will be the fastest guy in practice, the slowest guy in practice, second fastest, second slowest, to keep everything even. I think at that point you're going to have a lot of finger pointing that, you know, you put me in the wrong group with the wrong people. I am the only SHR car, and there's 300 cars in this group. You know, Mm -hmm. I think you're going to have a lot of that sniping back and forth. How come I didn't get to run with my teammates, and how come all these guys got to gang up on me? Con- conceptually, start to say concept-wise, but conceptually, it makes sense. But I think it opens us up to another whole avenue of finger pointing of why didn't yeah. I get what he got and he got better than I got that type of stuff. So I'm not sure if that's really the angle we need to go in. Yeah, you know what, Rocky? Thinking about it and what you just said makes a lot of sense. Plus, I think I would hate to see, you know, for you guys, let's say I'll use you guys as an example. If you're not in a group with Tift or McDowell um, and you're a single-car team at, at that point in that group and there's other teams that are that are relying on their teammates, they're probably going to work much easier with their teammates and they're going to have an advantage in that round. So, And I would hate to see that just based on how many teammates you have in a round. So, um, yeah, I, and, I think and the, same, honestly, the same situation, you know, we're we're still doing the same thing. We're still drafting. We're still not getting – you know, we're still not getting a true indication of who has the absolute fastest car. Right. And yeah. we're still sitting on pit road because nobody wants to go first. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the biggest you know, problem somebody, is that you – go ahead. Somebody came on Twitter and said, okay, why don't we build a chase car? Chase car and send it out first and everybody can follow him. Well, my immediate thought of that was, okay, number one, who's going to build it? Number two – yeah. Who's going to pay for it? You know, it's it's a nice idea, guys, but you know, are you going to go to Hendrick Hendrick Motorsports or or Roush Fenway or SHR and say we need you to build a build a car? We'll pay for it, but we need you to build it. We need you to maintain it. We need you to hire the staff to do all of that, just so it can lead everybody out for qualifying, so somebody has somebody yeah. to chase. Well, also, That's at that a lot. point, that organization now knows everything about that car, mm-hmm. and they can use it to their advantage. So that kind of stuff's not going to work either. No, I agree with you. I think that would be so much more work than what we need to have for qualifying. And, and again, a part of the, also, I think part of this too, the group is is so confusing, uh, where you know you, you kind of have guys all over the map, and you're kind of sitting there going, I don't even know who was fast because it's just mm-hmm. it happens so quick. 
Um, so again, I just, I, to me, I would love to see him go back to single car qualifying. Uh, Texas Motor Speedway this weekend, Rocky. You've been with both races, the Truck Series and the Xfinity Series. Something interesting, and I know the trucks had some cautions at, at Vegas, but Xfinity had a lot of wrecks yesterday, nine cautions in both Xfinity and trucks this weekend at Texas. Um, do you think that's part? Is, is it part of a new racetrack? Is it the PJ1 on the bottom of the racetrack? Uh, and it's sort of so unpredictable when you go into that corner, go into the corners. Why do you think we've seen so many accidents, and do you think that will carry into the cup race this weekend? I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'd mm-hmm. like to say it's PJ1 because I am not a fan of that stuff, and I've, I've been on record for a couple of years now as saying I'm not a fan of any type of, of traction-controlling device on the racetrack. We've run at these racetracks for 50 years, and now all of a sudden the racetracks aren't good enough, so we have to put something down so we can race again. To me, that's the point. But yeah. that's what they all want to do, so let them do it. As far as what do I think the problem is this weekend with the amount of accidents we've had, here comes the curveball, the wind. Oh, I honestly think the wind has gotten these guys. The way this track is built with the the condos in turn, you know, you got the the whole front stretch grandstand pretty much blocks the wind on the front stretch. You go into turn one, you've got the speedway club, all that blocks the wind. You get in between one and two, there's a short little opening there between the speedway club and the condos where you get a really, really big gust of wind, anything over 15 miles an hour, and it's it's a good-sized gust. Then again, you hit as soon as you hit turn two, the condos are blocking the wind. Again, you come off of turn two, open air. All the way down the back stretch into turn three, open air. I think we're picking up gusts, and it's making these cars light. Because it seems like wow. everything that's happening is happening on exit. And that's where your car is mm-hmm. at its lightest, lightest point anyway. So if you catch a gust while it's light, that thing will come around on you and come around on you fast. Yeah. We saw, and it's just, I just think it's been so interesting to watch. Do you think that will, uh, I don't know what the wind's like today at Texas. Do you think that will carry over to today um, in the cup series where you think we'll see a lot of cautions? Because we haven't seen too many cautions so far this, this year, especially on the, on the mile and a half tracks. Do you think we'll have some cautions today? I, I think that the situation will be the same. We're expecting 12 to 15 mile an hour winds all day. So I think the the potential is there. I think these guys are a little bit better, a little bit more adept, adapted to taking care of these situations and understanding them a little bit better than the other two series are. I think we will have less cautions than we had the first two days. But, and here's the big one, yesterday's practice, and we weren't planning on talking about this, but this would be a good opportunity to work it in. Yesterday's practice was absolutely the most intense hour that I have spent in practice on top of the roof in easily the last 15 years. Wow. And that includes Daytonas and Talladega. Usually Daytona and Talladega, you go out as a group, you do maybe two group runs. You just want to make sure everything works. You certainly don't want to tear up your stuff. So you want to go out, I'll run five or six laps, make sure everything feels good, everything works the way it's supposed to then I'm going to save my car for Sunday. Yesterday, it was absolutely crazy. Drafting, packs everywhere. We ran, you know, we, we purposely, instead of wanting to go out by ourselves, as soon as David would come out of the garage, I'm looking for a group to get him in the middle of so we can feel what the wind's going to do, what the draft's going to do, all that stuff. And you were talking 8, 10, 12 cars, dicing in and out amongst each other in practice. 
It was mm-hmm. as intense as anything I've ever – and David mentioned it. I mentioned it. We all mentioned it. You know, David said, I don't want to do this, but I feel like i got to because i got to see what my car will do because that's what everybody else is doing. So it was right. a monkey see, monkey do type situation, and it's the hardest I've worked in a long time. So if yesterday is any indication of what today is going to be like, then I think your caution count might be up a little bit. Interesting. Well, and here's the thing I find more interesting about that is, you know, Dale Jarrett used to talk about this all the time where when he ran, he said, we used to go out in packs and and, and practice. And he goes, now they sort of do this single car run and your car handles so much differently behind a car and in a pack than it would if, uh, you know, you're out by yourself. And over the years, we've seen where if you got close to somebody, your handling changed a little bit. You just couldn't really make complete the pass. Uh, I know, David's complained about this a couple of times this year where he just feels like his car completely changes. It drastically changes now when he gets behind somebody, I guess, because of the high spoiler and all the changes we've made with, with this package. Do you think that is why Rocky, we've seen this, this uptick today at Texas where a lot of people have sort of been in that boat, same boat as what David's been talking about all year, where the handling completely changes when you're behind a car and in a pack. And since we race like that, and since we're going to be, um, you know, when when we restart, we're going to be like that, and that's where you can get a lot of positions. Do you think that is why you saw the pack yesterday? I think it was just purely because we now understand what the draft is going to do at these mile-and-a-half tracks. With this new package, you know, Vegas was a test, and we've only had one other mile-and-a-half track that fits the template that, that Texas Motor Speedway is, and that was Las Vegas. And we saw there, but, you know, that was the first time we did it. Phoenix and Fontana really didn't count. Martinsville, of course, didn't count. So now we're back here again going, okay, what do we got to do? You know, we're drafting everywhere. Everybody's drafting off everything. I think it was more of we need to know what our cars will do around everybody else because the draft is going to be important. The field will stretch out just like it did in the Xfinity race. We will go single file at some point. But as long as you're able to keep up with somebody in the draft, and this is a – and I saw this yesterday. I saw it a little bit Friday night, but I really saw it yesterday. And, and the word momentum keeps coming back to me. This is such a momentum track because the way this draft is working right now, if you have to lift the least little bit, if you come into a corner, and it's going to be where where my job is important again, I've got to keep David aware of what's going on in front of him. If you catch a guy too fast in a corner and you have to crack the throttle, you're done. You've lost all your momentum, and everybody's going to fly by you. So if I know he's catching somebody, you know, say, in, let's just say a 77 car. He's catching a 77 car really, really quick. I have to be able to tell him how quick he's going to catch him, how quick you're going to get to his bumper, because he needs to make sure. If I'm going to catch him in two seconds, I better already start moving, move up, can shoot right by him, because if I get hung up behind him and i got to lift, I've lost all my momentum. The 10 guys behind me are going to go flying by me because they didn't have to. So I think that's a lot of what we were working with yesterday, trying to figure out, trying to figure out what we can do, how quick the closure rates are going to be, and what's going to happen if we lose our momentum, how long is it going to take to get it back? Interesting. Yeah, that's going to be very interesting to keep an eye on today, Rocky. Um, and I know, I know listening, you do a tremendous job of that where you know you have a slow one coming up on in turn three and David's coming out of turn two, so you give him plenty of time. So, But it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out even more with, like you said, momentum and the draft being such a big factor. Uh, 
I want to sort of focus on the PJ one here, Rocky, since it's the first time we've seen it in 2019. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of it. I, you hit the, I thought you'd hit a grand slam when you said we've had these racetracks for 30, 40 years, never needed any kind of substance on these racetracks. And now all of a sudden we need a substance to help us make us race at these tracks. But for the fans who, and, and this is where I'm a little bit, um, I have a little bit of trouble for the fans who don't understand the technical side of the race cars as much as they, sh- as they, I probably should. Um, can you explain what the PJ one, the difference between having it and not is, uh, I know it widens the groove and, and, and it, uh, makes people think it makes for better racing, but what would happen if we didn't have it this weekend compared to what would happen if we did, or what does it exactly do to, to the racing here at Texas? Uh, I just kind of want to get focused on that today, uh, right now. A quick, simple way to explain what PJ1 does, everybody in this world has drank a Coke at one time or another. Everyone in this world has spilt a Coke at one time or another. When you spill the Coke and it dries, it gets pretty sticky, doesn't it? Yes. There's your PJ1. That's all it does. It gives the cars more grip. It's a sticky-type substance. actually gives you better traction. So if you take that away, these cars are going to slip and slide and move around a lot. If you put it there, what it does is it gives these guys grip and it gives them the the confidence to go into a corner with a little bit more throttle than they normally would because they know the car is going to stick because there's PJ1 there. They want to put it in the grooves that you don't normally use. They want to put it in the grooves that you feel are not as conducive to speed as the other grooves are. That's why they always want to put it there. So that way you've got a choice. If typically you run the bottom of turns one and two, if I put the PJ1 a groove up, then these guys know I've got traction up there. I've got grip. Maybe I can go to the outside and pass somebody. It creates two-lane racing and, therefore, hopefully more passing. That's what the PJ1 does. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just – I do you think it would um... – is there what way would we could we maybe not do this PJ one? Do, do you think we need a softer tire, kind of a change the race car entirely, that would help to where we can sort of do that naturally, not using the PJ one? Uh, I don't want to get, get get in trouble by saying anything, but uh, <laughs> what what do you think the big reason why we need the PJ one now than we and when we didn't need it five ten years ago? Let me say this, and and I hope I'm not getting myself in trouble by saying this. I don't believe I am. Um. I'm like a lot of other people. I feel like these splitters, these side skirts, all this downforce we're giving these cars, we don't need. I want to go back to the old school where the wind can get up under these cars and make it a lot more difficult to drive. I'm going to record right now and say that's what I think we need. And I think that right now that's part of what's causing all this is we've got too much downforce. At the same time, and this is where I hope to save myself, I understand, or at least I think I understand, why NASCAR is in the position they're in right now about having to give these cars more downforce. The one thing they are deathly afraid of happening, and guys, please understand, they're actually got a good point. These cars can't fly. We don't need these cars to fly into the grandstand. And I don't blame them for being scared to death. If we take these side skirts off, if we take these splitters off, if we start packing air up onto these cars, 
they're going to get airborne. And mm-hmm. if they get airborne and go into a grandstand, guys, we might as well fold up tents and move on because we're done. The sport's not going to survive if we start sending cars off into the grandstand. What what, what can we do? You know, I, I understand. If, if you're listening right now, you're going to say, well, okay, well, let's just move the fans back. We can't do that. We can't rebuild grandstands. That's going to cost way right. too much. What's there is there. So NASCAR's trying to find a way to give us the best racing product we can, but still keep you fans safe. I don't like it. I wish we didn't have it, but I have to agree with them. I don't want to. I don't want to wake up the next morning and start reading all these stories online about the hundreds of people that were injured or, God forbid, killed because one of our cars got airborne and went into a grandstand. I don't want that to happen. So I've got to trust that they're making the best calls they can make right now. But because we've got so much downforce, it creates this whole other myriad of problems. Grip levels, you know, the PJ1, all that kind of stuff, running in packs, doing this, that, and the other thing. Still, the ultimate responsibility of NASCAR is we've got to keep the fans safe. So we start there, and then we try and work around. What's the solution? I don't know. I don't know. I wish I did because then I'd probably have me a much better job than I do, but <laughs> that's the way it is right now. I agree with you. Uh, I, I thought you hit a home run when you said take the side skits off and everything, but I was there at Daytona. Uh, a, a bunch of years back when Kyle Larson's car went to the catch fence and the engine caught it and the tire went into the stands and other debris went into the stands. And I was walking out and had to go past where the stands were in the accident scene to where that was. And it was, it was almost like it was, uh, uh, it was so real. Let me try and put the words to it. It was a wake up call to me because I, I never would have, I, I would totally would have been in on board with, take the side skirts off. But that was so real to me because I'm watching people walk out of the racetrack with ice packs on their arms, getting wheeled mm-hmm. out uh, on, 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 uh, on stretchers because they went, they simply came to watch a NASCAR race at Daytona. That was, that was real. And I was way far from the accident. I was um, Larson wrecked like towards start finish line. I was way down towards more towards turn one at the end of pit road. So it was significant ways away from me. But just saying, man, I could have passed that person on the way in, and they got a tire sitting on top of them, uh, you know, because they wanted to see a, a Xfinity Series race on Saturday. That really was a wake-up call to me. That that was about as close as we've come in NASCAR. And I know Bobby Allison had it when he went up and upside down in '88 or '87 at Talladega. Um, there was a lot of fans injured in that one too. But I felt like Larson. In this day and age, that was about as close as we've come to really having a major, 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 major issue um, with with the fans in, in these cars getting getting airborne the way they do. So, yeah, I completely understand that. And, I, again, I probably wouldn't have understand that, stood that as well as I do now because I was at that race and saw all the people getting getting taken out on stretchers and all the people coming out with injured body parts because they got hit by debris at Daytona. That was a big wake-up call to me. So, um, I, I'm for that, honestly. I, I totally agree there with, with that. And Clayton, you want you want to know the truth about it? And again, this is something that could get me in trouble, but I think I'm I think I'm speaking from the heart, and I think that matters. Absolutely. And I hope that that those that are listening can hear in my voice that you know I want the best, just like you guys do. I do. I want better racing. I want I want to pack these teams again. I want to be the number one sport there is. But at the same time. You know, and you said it, we've both said it. 
You guys are coming to watch a race. You're coming to be entertained. You're not coming to go out in a stretcher. You're not coming to go out in the back of an ambulance. That's not what we're here for. That's our responsibility. That's the risk we take. You shouldn't have to take a risk at all. And the reason why I say all that, the preamble I'm getting ready to say now is I'm a little disappointed, I guess, is the, is the nicest word I come up with saying I wish NASCAR would explain that to the race fans the way I just did. Mm-hmm. Explain I, to these people this is why we're having to do what we're having to do because we want to protect you. But they don't. They don't say that, and it leaves the race fans frustrated as going, why can't we have this? Why can't we have that? There are reasons. Tell them. Right. Tell them, guys, we're just trying to protect you. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we have to do. We have to protect you. So please understand, we'd like it to be better, too, and we're working to try and make it better. But we cannot, cannot make these cars so unsafe that they might hurt you, period. I totally agree with that. Uh, it's last couple minutes of the show here, Rocky, I want to focus on, on Texas and who you think is going to be fast today. Uh, real quick, you've been in the practice sessions um, here at, at uh, Texas. And uh, just if you could give us who you think might, might be fast today and, and somebody to look at and how you guys think you're going to be, uh, what you guys are fighting maybe in practice for, for the Reagan fans who are listening uh, on that 38 car. I'm sorry. Come back on that again. Sorry. Uh, just, just if you could just tell us who was fast in practice, maybe who looked good in practice to you. And for the Reagan fans listening, uh, maybe what the outlook is and maybe what was David fighting in practice or, or, um, and stuff like that, if you can. I'll say, and, and the reason why I had to repeat that, because I, I needed a second to, to try and figure out how I'm going to say this, because I did think about it yesterday in practice. I thought about, you know, Remember that, that we have two teammates, and everything we do, it's a rivalry. That's, that's what it is. I'm sorry. You know, you got two teammates. You always want to be better than your two teammates. So I'm Absolutely. sitting there watching the scoring pylon yesterday during practice, and Michael goes out. See, we always start our practice with we want to gauge our pit road speed. So we'll roll out, roll around the track slowly, come down pit road at pit road speed to make sure all of our stuff is set up the way we need it to do all right, at that point, you're already putting a couple of laps on your tires, so you're not going to be as fast once practice starts. Michael McDowell likes to go out, blast right out on track, go as fast as he can in the first five laps. He's usually a whole lot faster than us in practice, but there's still that friendly rivalry. Okay, so we get done with our pit road stuff. We go out, we make a few laps. Now we can start adjusting on our car. I look on the scoring pile. Okay, Michael's fifth. We're 14th. Is Michael that much faster than we are right now? No, I know he's not. He went out and did a race run. We did pit road stuff. We put a couple laps on our tires at slow speed. He's on fresh tires. He's going to be better. But you spend that whole hour watching to see what your teammates are doing. Am I a little bit better than my teammate, or what's my teammate doing? And then you're watching the other guys. You know, the 48 was so fast on Friday and everything. Where is he now? He's not at the top of the board. Now the 42 is at the top of the board. Mm-hmm. I have to go along with what so many radio people say. It's so hard to gauge practice because you don't know what people are doing. You can't say that this guy looks stronger than this guy. I mean, right now, you ask me who I think is strong. You can't deny that the 48 is not strong right now. He won every single round of qualifying the other day. Same time, he won it off draft. That's fine because once we go racing, we're going to draft too. So I think that's somebody you have to look at. The four car, always good. and Not so much this time. He's kind of like in the mid, you know, round 15, something like this. Is that because they're working on stuff? Hard to say. Go back to 
Who won the last two races at this racetrack in the last 72 hours? Kyle Busch. Kyle Busch. How, yeah. how can you not say Kyle Busch is strong? Kyle Busch is strong. Kyle Busch did some stuff yesterday in practice I've never seen before. He ran three or four laps really, really slow at the bottom of the track. What's he doing? What's he know that none of the rest of us know because nobody else did it? You know, I think we're okay. I, I think we have an advantage because we have probably one of the top seven or eight drafting drivers in this sport today. David Reagan understands the draft as well as anybody out there. Everybody always talks about Keselowski and, and now Logano and all that. We've got Reagan, and I'd put my two cents on him before I would do those other two guys. So I think as far as understanding this draft and how it's going to work during the course of the day, I think that helps us a lot. How do I think we are overall car-wise? I think we're still battling a little bit. You know, expanding to three teams, moving to a new shop, all that has really kind of hurt us, it, as it hurts anybody. Anybody that had to make the moves and the changes that we made in the offseason, it's going to slow them down a little bit. But I think we're just starting to sense what we need to be doing and how we need to be doing it better. And I think yesterday, we, we all three of us were just right with each other. I think we were 26, 28th, and 29th or 30th or something like that. But it was just the, the, the process of drafting. I think we're probably right now about a 17th to 20th place car. And I certainly hope we can finish there because that would be a really good improvement for us and something that we need to build on. But it's going to be the same cast of characters. You're going to be chasing the 18, the 4. The 42 is good because the 42 is much better using different grooves than everybody else. Key to me is what's the 48 going to do now that he has an opportunity. He knows he's got speed. He knows he's got everything he needs. Can he put it together and, you know, run a kind of race that the 48's used to running? I think that'll be interesting to watch. But if I were to pick anybody right now, you just you can't take your eyes off the 18 and what they're capable of doing. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, Kyle's just – he's got this package so far figured out so far this year. Rocky, I appreciate everything you, you brought to the show today, and I can't wait to do it again next week. Good luck today at Texas Motor Speedway, and we'll, we'll see you guys next week on Talking Circles. Good night, everybody.